Well, good morning, church. Man, whoo! Uh, it is incredible, isn't it, to gather up here uh, in a weekly rhythm uh, to be able to both personally take what is inside of us and express it to God and to those in our biblical community of our awe and love and worship of Jesus and to be the recipients of those around us doing the same so that we might hear the awe and wonder of Jesus being declared to us because Jesus is worthy of how much honor? All and how much glory? All and how much power? All. He's worthy of what? Everything, right? Uh, You guys turn around for a second and look at that wall back there. Do you see what's on that wall back there? Jesus. You know why? Because I want to make sure, we want to make sure as a leadership that whoever is standing on this stage to do anything remembers that we are here for an exclusive reality, and that is to facilitate our collective awe of the person of Jesus and all that he has done for us and all that he is. And so what a joy it is to come here together and do exactly that. We are on a pilgrimage Uh, heading toward Easter, which is in our annual rhythm, a weekend that we get to fix our eyes and set our minds and move our hearts and souls uh, toward Jesus, to remember him and all that he is and all that he's done and all that we have because of him. And we are on a pilgrimage heading toward Easter, in this journey where we are exploring the beautiful reality of scripture that God's intent and will for us as a human race and for time and space was that we would be a people that would dwell with him and he would be our God dwelling with us and we would be in an environment and in a relationship that was perfectly intimate, perfectly beautiful. And that that is where he made us in the beginning for and where he will take us at the end. The pilgrimage we're on is to explore the journey of God regularly and constantly coming and showing up and bringing himself to us because that plan of this integrated, beautiful uh, relationship we have with God and the dwelling of us with God and him with us was broken and shattered in the beginning of time. So, So where have we come so far? We started in the beginning in Genesis chapter one and two, and we saw there in our first week of our pilgrimage, God creating two spaces, two domains, two dwelling places, heaven and earth. Heaven being described as his dwelling place and earth as ours. But what was fascinating and is fascinating about Genesis 1 and 2 is though we are in Genesis 1 and 2 in our dwelling space, earth, in the Garden of Eden, 
there is a clarity that the line between God's dwelling space and ours was essentially non-existent. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden seamlessly, not as one visiting, but as one with them. And their experience of earth was the same as the experience described in the dwelling place of God. It was perfect. It had no sin. It had no death. It had no suffering. It had no shame. It had no darkness. It was life. It was perfect. It was beautiful. And so what we experience in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the world God created of heaven and earth were integrated even though we didn't get a chance to catch the heaven side yet. And the reason we didn't get a chance to move into, okay, how does the heaven part fit into the earth part and all of that is because of Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, made the decision to exchange God's glory for their own to take what they could to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, to be like God, to have what God has and instead they did exactly what God said would happen. They, they, they opened up the door for sin to enter into creation and our world became separated from God's world. Our lives separated from God's life. And so he and his world were life and light and freedom and us and our world were death and bondage and darkness. And there we were. And starting in Genesis chapter 3 and onward, God begins immediately to enter into our world and say, I'm not done with you yet. I have a plan. It was my plan for integration of your world and mine. It still is my plan. This is not plan B. I will bring about my will of you dwelling with me, me dwelling with you. And then there is this progression of a journey that God demonstrates that evolving and progressing and expanding plan of him coming to us, coming for us, not him waiting for us to come to him for him. And that's what we've been exploring. And as we explore that journey, we see this progressive expanding reality of God bringing himself to us, bringing home to us, coming and dwelling with us. Where it's going to end as a reminder, because it's where we're headed for Easter, is in Revelation 21, where John says, I looked up and I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem came where? Down, is not we go to him, came down to our domain. They are integrated. And what does God say in that chapter? I'm going to make my dwelling place with you, with men, and they will be my people and I will be their God. That's where God is taking us. The full integration of perfection, light, life, and freedom, heaven and earth together, him ruling with us, over us, and us being his people. Wow, that's where we're headed. But how does he get us there? And the beautiful thing about this homecoming is it is not something of the past, nor something of the present, nor something of the future. It is the past, the present, and the future. 
Home has been coming. Home is coming. Home will come. Not like we're waiting for it. What we've been discovering is that all along, God has been coming to dwell with us and progressively getting closer and closer and closer to us, giving us the room to get closer and closer and closer to him. Where did it begin? It began after the Garden of Eden was lost to us and the integration was lost to us. It began with the tabernacle. God went to the people that he had called out from the nations and said, build me a tent and I will come dwell in it. Remember that? And, and, and this tent, this tabernacle, uh, the tent of, of dwelling, right? Uh, this tent was simple. It wasn't complicated. It didn't have a lot of stuff in it. It wasn't a glorious place. It wasn't a brutal place. It was a tent with a couple of things that were reflections of the Garden of Eden and our relational dynamic with God. And it began to tell a story. The story it began to tell was that God is going to come to us, make his dwelling place with us, not call us to try to get to him. What a thing that should be for us. We have a God who's making his home where? With us, it's a big deal. And the tent was like, okay, I'm gonna hang out in the tent here and I'm gonna be with you in your camp. But the tent was complicated because God is holy and we are sinful. And when sin and God interact, what happens to sin? It dies. And so the tent was there. God was in the tent. But the restrictions and realities of our access to him were significant. Then God takes the tent, a temporal structure that moved with the people, a simple structure that displayed some of the story. And he gave instruction for a temple. And the temple was the tent, but an expanded version. And the temple was far more complex and far more ornate and far more wondrous. The temple was filled with jewels and gold and glory. Why? The temple sat up on a hill and it was outwardly this expression of power and wonder and glory. Why? Because the temple was where God would dwell and the temple was his glory personified, right? It was God is here and it is glorious. So the temple was beautiful and displayed a great deal of glory, an expansion of the tabernacle. But the temple was also brutal. It was also a place of blood, of sacrifice, of death, because the access of humankind into the glory of God was complicated because of what we said, sin, and the requirement for that access, the clarity became that it's a brutal grace. Grace is brutal. Grace is hard. Grace is the death of something to pay for sin. And so there was this journey in the temple of the collision of glory and grace, of beauty and brutality, of wonder and sacrifice. And it came together and yet our access to God was complicated in that space. And these two spaces that we've traveled through post Garden of Eden, what God did is he showed up in a tangible way in each of these spaces by declaring in his word and the glory of the Lord showed up. 
And it happened in the book of Exodus chapter 40. Remember, we were here two weeks ago. Exodus chapter 40 is the first time that we encounter uh, this beautiful declaration. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. The tabernacle is completed. It's, It's set up and it says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God tangibly shows up in his dwelling place and says, I'm now among you. I am inhabiting the tent. Don't come in here carelessly. In fact, very few of you come in here, but I'm inhabiting the tent. Then look what happens in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now we have moved and progressed and expanded, and we have now come to the place where the temple is completed, and it says this about the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place... A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud of the glory of the Lord that filled the house of the Lord. So in in Exodus 40, the first showing up of God in his dwelling place among us, in 1 Kings 8, the second declaration of God's glory showing up, that shone in a place, filled a place. Guess where the third declaration of God's glory filling a place happens? In Luke chapter 2, the New Testament. Now there are places in the Old Testament where prophets have visions of the throne room, Isaiah's an example, and they see the glory of the Lord, but it's not about God's glory filling a place here. It's about them having a vision of God's glory. But the next time in scripture, after Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8, that we hear the sentence, and the glory of the Lord filled a place, happened in Luke chapter 2, and that should clue us into what? There is an expansion of the temple, the dwelling place of God. There is an expansion of what God is up to. The tabernacle became the temple. The temple is becoming something more, because what you'll discover about God and his journey bringing home to us is that just when you think, this is as good as it gets, he has more. He has more all the way to Revelation 21, where I don't know what more is beyond that, but I can guarantee you we will find out someday. So let's go to Luke chapter two and see the next point in which the glory of the Lord fills a place. So Luke chapter two starts in verse, doesn't start. Luke chapter two, verse eight, it says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
when we read that, at least for me, when I've read that in the past, I have always connected the shining of the glory of the Lord to the fact that a bunch of angels showed up, right? They are the angels, glory of the Lord. But he doesn't actually use that language throughout scripture just because angels show up. These are two unique realities happening simultaneously. Some angels showed up to say something and what else showed up? The glory of the Lord. So much so that it said when the glory of the Lord showed up and shone out, what did the shepherds do? They were afraid. They fell down. They're like, oh, same as the priests, same as Moses. And then a declaration is made. You should go to the town nearby Bethlehem because tonight a baby was born there. Put it together. Third time in scripture, the glory of the Lord is tangibly showing up. And what is the declaration? I have a new temple. I have a new residing place. You should go see it. But it is not an it. It is a person. And you're like, what? And we ought to, even sitting here, even though we know the story, we ought to sit here and go, hold on, what just happened? There is a massive transition here in the progressive work of God bringing home to us. There is a massive transition here in our access to God and the the complications of the tabernacle to the temple, now the temple to this new reality. And that is this change. God has up to this point in Luke come and he has inhabited a building that we have access to under certain circumstances. Are you with me so far? But now he is becoming God incarnate. He is now incarnate, incarnation in a person, not a building. Now we use this word incarnate, you know, as a theological term and it's a term we use and we all nod and go, yeah, he inhabited, now he's incarnate. Do you have any idea what incarnate actually means? Isn't that funny how we're often like, yeah, it's a great word. And I'm like, I don't really know what the word means. It sounds great. So I looked it up in the dictionary. And uh, it actually is an incredible word. Have you ever heard the, um, the saying, the devil incarnate? You've heard that, right? What does it mean when we say that person is the devil incarnate? What are we trying to say? Yes, that in the flesh, they so embody the realities of the devil that the devil's not with them, next to them, or around them. They are the devil, right? That's what the word incarnate actually means. The word incarnate in the dictionary, just so you guys are like, whatever, you're making this up. No, no, listen. Dictionary definition. Embodied in flesh, given a bodily, especially a human form. And then the little statement is the devil incarnate. See, I didn't make it up. The idea is that when you are incarnate, you actually indwell a body, a flesh. And God in this moment in Luke says to the shepherds, my new temple isn't a building, it's flesh you should go and see. And they go and they discover that God, in fact, has shown up in a body. And then what we discover about this showing up is some incredible things as the authors of scripture begin to tell us what this body, Jesus, is now since it is the dwelling place of God. 
In the same way that the temple was beauty and brutality, in the same way that the temple was glory and grace, in the same way that the temple represented the full glory of God and the full mercy of God in the simultaneous space that seemed contradictory, golden jewels, blood and sacrifice. Jesus embodies these things. Listen to what John says uh, in John chapter one, verse 14. John is writing about the coming of Jesus and that the fact that God is showing up on our planet. And in John chapter one, verse 14, here's what he writes. And the word Jesus, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What do we discover in the very first chapter of John? God has come to dwell with us in the person of Jesus, and he embodies the glory of God, and he embodies the grace of God simultaneously. He is beauty of God glory of God, and he is grace of God, brutality. Even the nature of how he is described in scripture is the collision of the glory of God and the nature of the brutality of sin. He is fully divine, fully God, and he is fully Man, fully man, the two not separated, the two one, and God is saying, I and I alone can embody the gap between the glory of who I am and the brutality of your sin. And I will live in it. The light came into the darkness and the darkness hated the light, but yet the light came to us. There is then descriptors from the first chapter in Matthew and onward of Jesus being our savior to come and save us, to bring us mercy, to bring us grace. And so we start catching this reality that Jesus now being the new dwelling place of God is now embodying the glory of God, but also something is unfolding where he is also going to embody the means or the way by which we have access to God. In the temple, God embodied the temple and his glory was there, but the means to God was temporal and external. Are you with me? There was a sheep or a goat or a dove or an animal that was killed, an external sacrifice that created a temporal means to get us slight access to God. But what we start discovering as early as the first chapters of the Gospels is that something about Jesus embodies the reality of sacrifice so that the new means to God will neither be external nor temporal, they will be personal and permanent. We don't know that yet, but we're going to find it out. So we start looking at Jesus going, whoa, this is a whole new level of God showing up and making his dwelling place among us. And then a story begins to unravel. First, it starts with the temple that was the dwelling place of God until a baby is born in Bethlehem. And Jesus ends up in that temple doing multiple things. On day 40 after he was born, he is dedicated in the temple. And they're like, the Messiah has come. The Savior has come. What they couldn't have fathomed is that God's dwelling place had switched 
from a little room inside the temple into a little body inside a person. And they're holding the dwelling place of God while standing in the previous dwelling place of God. Isn't that incredible? They didn't even know it. They're like, he's here in the dwelling place of God. And in fact, the truth was, we're holding the dwelling place of God. We're holding the new temple. And then at 12 years old, where is he sitting, having a discussion with a bunch of the teachers and Pharisees? in the temple and he's presenting an authority and a power and a wonder of knowledge that they said, who is this 12 year old, right? And what does he do? He starts using the previous dwelling place of God as a stage to walk into the declaration that he is now the new temple. And then he comes to that temple over and over again and teaches in the temple, teaches with great authority and great power and great wonder as he walks and he teaches in synagogues and in the temple. And then he cleanses the temple on multiple occasions, walking into the temple and and saying, we're going to make this right. He takes the temple and makes it his stage. The previous dwelling place of God now has the new dwelling place of God making the previous dwelling place of God his stage. And actually, at an early event, while he is in that temple, declaring the temple or any space where God has dwelt to be a space that needs to be sacred, he has asked some questions about where he gets his authority. In John chapter 2, look what unfolds. And this is where we go, we're not just guessing that Jesus is the new temple. Who said Jesus was the new temple? Jesus said Jesus was the new temple. So it's not me going, it looks like he's the new temple. Just read it. Watch. John chapter 2 verse 18. He's just cleansed the, 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 the building, right? And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, where do you get your authority? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, in the very beginning of the gospel, says what? I am the new temple. I am the new temple. And this new temple is now where you come to interact with God. You used to have to go to the building and only under certain circumstances in a very complicated way and only a few of you. But now I am residing in the person and the body of Jesus. And so you can come to me when? Whenever you want. And who can come to me? anyone because in some profound way God took the complete reality of his glory put it inside a human body made it visible yet made it safe you guys don't seem particularly impacted by that but you ought to just be going what what we could come right up to the glory of God without dying and Jesus would have come right here I've got it I'm holding my glory from killing you <laughs> while I'm making my glory visible to you because God was glory in Christ, right? And so people now can come and and Jesus becomes the focal point of worship. He becomes where we go to worship God because it's where God resides in Christ. 
And so we see throughout the New Testament points where Jesus was worshipped or honored as God, making statements as though he was God. And what would the Jewish teachers say to him every time? Oh, don't do that. That's blasphemy. Oh, tell him to stop. My favorite was toward the end of his journey on this planet where he's entering Jerusalem and literally the people are worshiping him as God and the Pharisees are like, make him stop. And this is what Jesus says. I mean, I could, but then the rocks will start singing glory to me and that's going to get weird. So we're going to just let the people keep doing it. My version. But what Jesus was really saying was this. No. No, I am God residing in my temple and these people are rightly worshiping me because I am the temple and I am residing in my temple and they are free to come because I have made a way, a new way that the old building couldn't make. But here's the crazy part. As people were interacting with Jesus and it seemed like he had made a way for a new version of intimacy with God and a closeness with God, like he scooted closer to us and allowed us to scoot closer to him, he had not shown us the full extent of the way that he was making. We're not even there yet. So we're just interacting with him. This is a new temple, a new way, a new intimacy, uh, worthy of worship. And then what does Jesus do? Not only is he worthy of worship, but the temple was where you came to worship God. The temple was also where the law resided or righteousness resided. Where was the law again? The tablets of the law were in the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and that is where God resided, right? So where was the law and righteousness personified? in the temple, who now personifies the law and righteousness? Jesus. When he teaches, he teaches with great authority. The people say, who is this that teaches with such authority? When he says things, they're brand new, but yet not new at all. They are evolutions, expansions, beautiful progressions of what was already the law. In fact, the scripture even says, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to complete it, fulfill it, finish it. He is the law. He is righteousness. And what we didn't even yet know at that point is that he was going to take his righteousness and give it to us. So, yeah, no, not yet, not yet. We're not there yet. Don't clap yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. So now we're with Jesus. He is uh, this beautiful solicitor of worship because he resides, God resides with us. He is righteousness in the law. We hear it, we see it, he speaks it. And then he is grace and forgiveness. You know, often Jesus was with someone like, I'm sick, I need help, I'm lame, I need help. And Jesus is like, your sins are forgiven. He goes to a place only God dares to go. And every time he does, the teachers of the law, rightly, they weren't fools. If he was not God, they were right to say, time out. You're doing God's stuff and you're not allowed to. Every time he forgave someone's sins, they said, you can't do that. You're not God. And then Jesus would say, ah, you're right. I'm so sorry. I take it back. Your sins are not forgiven. No, he didn't do that. Every conversation he had, he sort of gave them something that was like, yeah, no, I hear you, except that I am God. And so we begin to see everything the temple was reflecting, we begin to see embodied in Christ. And so the verses out of the prophetic words in the Old Testament that say, you think this temple is awesome? This is but a foreshadow of what is to come. And that which comes after this will take this 
and shadow it in comparison. God was already in the Old Testament saying, this building is just the start. It's gonna get better and better and better. And when we land in Jesus, we think that's it. This is the greater, better temple. And it is, but it's not even the end of the story. More yet to come. But we stand looking at Jesus and realize this new temple that has shown up is incredible. And now this temple, Jesus, isn't only worship, righteousness, and forgiveness, but it is a closeness and intimacy that God gives to us through Christ that we could never have had in the building that was the temple. And this closeness is God bringing home even closer. What did Jesus say when he would encounter people? Come here, gather up. The kingdom of God is where? It's right here. The kingdom of God has come how near to you? Right here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus' language was like, welcome. (laughs) Temple, kingdom of God, life right here. And then, as though that's not enough, the author of Hebrews writes to us about how intimate and close this new reality of God's residing place actually made us realize he was. Listen to this. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4, in verse 15, this is what it says. The author writes these words. Verse 14, let's start there. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And you might say, who is that next word? Jesus, the son of God. So any confusion about who we're talking about? Since we have a high priest, Jesus, the son of God, that's written here. Look what it says. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have A God who has now shown us that he knows us in ways we couldn't have imagined he knows us. It's not that after God became Jesus in the flesh, he suddenly empathized with our plight. How long has God known everything about us? Always. But we didn't know that. And so when he embodies Christ and he says this, it's him saying to us, FYI, whatever you've walked through, I know. I I was once uh, with a a dear friend of mine um, at a big company in the area where people dress up for fun. Um, It's called Disney. And uh, um, he was, at that time, uh, he he was sort of running one of of the big parks, okay? So in that park and in that environment, uh, he was the top of, of of that chain, so he and I are walking around the park and there was a ride that he wanted to take me on. And so we went and we stood in line for the ride. And the particular young man who had just started working for Disney, who was handling the line for that ride, wasn't embodying Disney that well. Can we just say that? And I, I get it, you know, it's, it's a hard day, it's frustrating. So I'm in line with my friend who runs this park and this kid is just not doing so well. And I can tell, I can feel it, my friend's like, but he doesn't say anything. 
And we go through and we get on the ride and he apologizes. And I'm like, don't apologize. It's, it's not you. And he's like, yeah. And so I, we get off the ride and I'm like, I'm curious. Where does this go? And he's like, tomorrow morning. And I'm like, oh, tomorrow morning. That's going to be interesting. Because he, he had memorized the name immediately, right? So the next morning, there's a meeting that happens. And I'm super curious. And so I text my friend in the afternoon. I'm like, how'd the meeting go? And a question mark. And he calls me. And he's like, oh. So he says to me, this kid walks into his office. Now you got to understand, right? In some ways, at least in that little pocket, it's kind of like us walking into the office of the king. You know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't like your boss or your boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss. This is the guy that runs this whole place. And you just started here. And he rolls in. And so my friend says, he rolls into my office. And, and, and so uh, I, I start this conversation like, hey, th- that didn't go well. And this is what he says to me. You have no idea what it's like to be on the floor all day long, to deal with all the people and their stuff. You have no idea. You sit here in this lovely place, and I, poor me, I'm on the floor. If you had any idea what it was like. Well, it turns out that my friend started at Disney 35 years before that as a boat driver, and there is not anything at Disney he has not done. And so he knows this. So when the kid's done complaining about his plight, my friend says, you have no idea about me. There is nothing you will do at this company that I have not done. No line you will have to navigate that I have not navigated. No hard day you will have to get through that I haven't gotten through. Nothing that you will do I have not done. So I get exactly what it's like. And yet I did it in a way that you're not doing it. This is what our king comes and shows us in the person of Jesus. When you think you're going through something that I don't understand, that I cannot empathize with, that I don't fully grasp, that I don't feel with you, see with you, understand with you, then you don't know me. There is nothing you will go through, no weight you will carry, no terrible valley you will go through, no darkness you will enter that I do not know better than you, that I have not walked deeper than you. There is no suffering you will enter into that I have not suffered to a greater extent than you. And we didn't even know this here, but it turns out when he suffered for us to take on our sin, That suffering was so massive just physically that he should have died, but he kept himself alive to suffer beyond human capacity. If you and I went through what he went through just physically toward the cross, we would have died before we were crucified. He has suffered more than you are capable or I am capable. And then he took on to himself the sin of all creation. You can't even do that. You can't even know that weight, nor can I. And so what our, our God says to us is that when I showed up in my new temple, Jesus, I scooted so close to you, you didn't even know how close I was. I know you, feel you, see you, am with you, and I've made access for you to be with me right here by my side. I bring the power of my righteousness and law, the wonder of my glory and the beauty of my grace and forgiveness. And I am right here. And I know everything about you and have walked everything you've walked. Welcome 
to being with me. And we're not even there yet. And then this God, this extraordinary God becomes the very way that gives us total access in the future. In fact, total access in the present. Because what we will see happen is that in the redemptive work of Jesus, by giving himself to die for us and to raise from the dead, to become the sacrificial lamb that the old temple had a shadow of so that we would no longer ever again need to be afraid of being in the presence of God or him being in our presence, making a way for his dwelling place to change from Jesus, a single body on this planet, to dwell where? In us. He can't do that because we're sin. But Jesus not only scoots right up next to us, but he makes a way so he can do what? Reside so much with us that he's in us. That's for next week. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But even Jesus said, it's better for me to ascend and go because I'm sending you my spirit and my spirit will dwell where? In you. That is only possible because of the redemptive work of Jesus. And that's not even the end of Revelation where Revelation 21 gets us. That's just the next evolution. But before we get there, that's next week. Let's go here. So Jesus dies for us, rises from the dead. And this temple becomes not only a new level of access, but a way for complete access in the future. And then, and then we see the culmination of that in Revelation chapter 5. Let's go there. Because this honestly is where we should land as we spend the time today. We should land in a place where we say, when I feel overwhelmed, when I feel alone, when I feel like God doesn't get me, when I'm not sure what's going on, when I think he's done, I need to remember I have a high priest who's walked where? Everywhere I've walked. Knows what? Everything I know. Carried what kind of weight? Greater than I do. He gets me, but more than the fact that he gets me, he's also my way to forever intimacy with God and the full integration of heaven and earth in my future, the home yet to come that is coming and has been coming all along. And this is what happens in Revelation. Listen to this. Revelation chapter five, verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he, the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense or worship, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. 
the full integration is already reflected in Revelation 5. He doesn't say in heaven, he says they will reign on earth because it's all going to be the same. Oh wait, we're not done. Then I looked and I heard among the throne, the living creatures and the elders, uh, uh, I'm sorry, throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels as well, numbering in myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That means that even the demons were worshiping under the earth, around the earth. How many knees will bow? How many tongues will confess? This is that moment and all to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I wish I could say it better than this, but I'm going to say it through this person because they said it better than me. John Stott wrote this as we think about what Jesus has done for us and what this new temple and residing place of God was for us. The essence of sin is putting myself in the place of God, wanting what he wants, wanting to be what he is. The essence of salvation is God putting himself in my place. One of our pastors here, Kevin Dunn, wrote in response to that quote this, we have substituted ourselves and stole the glory of God. He took sin that is not his. We put ourselves where only he deserves to be. And he put himself where only we deserve to be. We serve a God that has been coming for us ever since the terrible fiasco in the Garden of Eden. We serve a God who's been dwelling with us progressively in Revelation since the beginning and a God who is dwelling with us closer and closer and closer until eventually it says, I will make my dwelling place with you and you with me. I will be your God and you my people. There will be no, no more death, no more darkness, no more sin, no more suffering, no more anything. The full integration of all creation is coming and that is a reality because of the redemptive work of Jesus on our behalf. And Easter, we walk into the story of his redemption and the implications of it, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. But between now and then, he scoots closer first by his spirit in his church. And our next two weeks, we'll get to explore that. For now we sit here, we stare into the face of Jesus and we worship like every other voice in all of creation did when they saw the Lamb of God and said, worthy, worthy is he of how much? Of all. Let's pray. God, thank you that you uh, didn't just uh, leave us after Genesis chapter 3 and then show back up in Revelation that you didn't just show up 
after Genesis chapter 3. And then that's where your presence was, end of story. You have progressively been scooting closer and closer to us ever since we left you in the garden. You have been making a way, showing a way, dwelling with us in the tabernacle, then dwelling with us in the temple, then dwelling with us in the flesh. And then you will dwell with us by your spirit until you make your dwelling place permanently ours and ours yours. And all this certainly for your glory and certainly by your grace. We are the recipients of your mercy so that we can be the recipients of your glory. So that we can worship you and have life forever. We are so grateful. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for being the way. Thank you for coming. Thank you for residing with us. Thank you for scooting so close and inviting us even closer. Thank you. Help us to remember each day when the days get hard and dark or when days get light and wonderful that you and you alone are enough and worthy of all glory. You have walked wherever we might walk and you have soared wherever we might soar. So wherever we find ourselves, there you have been. May we lean into you and trust you because you are good and you are God and you are ours and we are yours. We love you, Jesus. Amen.